we had started doing research on small data sets. And now we are. Now we're doing, you know, AI on small data rather than AI on big data. We're having tremendous results, but, but we have to do it. So this is really one of the learnings that if you need to train on big data, it simply takes too long. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Deborah DeSanzo has been a leader in the healthcare IT field for nearly 30 years, but it was a flight attendant named Bridget who gave her effort purpose, and a system named Watson that gave her the platform she needed to crusade against medical mistakes. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunin. And I'm David Shewitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. So David, I'm wondering, have you or someone you love ever been a victim of a medical mistake? I just think it's pervasive. I don't know anyone almost who has any significant interaction with the health system who hasn't seen yeah. some kind of issue. I mean, even if you follow on Twitter, you look at the experience even of, of physicians, of anybody, and they're just, they're, they tend to watch over you know, their loved ones like hawks because yeah. it's not if but when. I know. I, I, I've had a couple myself, uh, interactions with that with that problem in the medical system. And it's really scary, you know. I, I um, Even when you know a lot, you know, it's it's hard to avoid. It is, you know, there's sort of this idea of, oh, I mean, there's so much that's great about, you know, the, the level of care that's provided. But then there's just so many small, even smaller, large things that can get lost in the handoffs, in, in one person, people trying to follow the care, people trying to figure out, people have, and, you know, the gold, even the gold standards a lot of times are based on some kind of committee. There's so many ways things can become suboptimal. And I really understand why so many physicians and other folks I know become so intensely involved in the care of loved ones to sort of help guide it and try to make sure it doesn't get too far off the rails. Well, a highly relevant topic to um, our guest today. Deborah DeSanzo had a plan. She was going to be a stockbroker and make a ton of money to rise out of the rough circumstances of her childhood and make it big. When she realized she hated that job but loved programming, she cast around for a new way to exercise her tech skills. Despite a series of setbacks as tech company after tech company didn't quite make it, Deborah found herself as a product manager at Apollo with a bunch of technology looking for a new use case. Armed with 250 computers, a blank slate, and a team of neurophysiologists at University of Pittsburgh who needed better ways to make decisions, Deborah found her true love, the use of technology to make medical decisions better. So Deborah, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Lisa. Tell us about that first Apollo computer health product you built in 1989. This has been one of the first uses of algorithms for decision support, I'm guessing. Yeah, so 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 completely cool. So I had worked, just as you said, I had, had worked for my last startup, which actually we had to declare that we had to um, uh, say Chapter 7 for on July 5th, but we ran on Apollo computer workstations when I was four, and I didn't want to go work, for, I didn't want to look for a job, so I went to work for Apollo, and they put me as a product manager on, I don't know if there's any Apollo people still out there, but it was the DN2500 workstation, which was a really low-end workstation at the time. I remember it had like all, like one MIP of processing power. Um, it's crazy to think about, but they put me on this um, product, and they told me to go find a use case for it. So it happened that University of Pittsburgh wanted to create, at that time, University of Pittsburgh was doing more brain surgeries than any other institution in the U.S. They had seven hospitals. They would have 12 operations going on at once, but they only had six neurophysiologists, and the six neurophysiologists had to oversee every one of those um, uh, surgeries. 
So what we did, we networked 250 Apollo computer workstations together across seven hospitals in every operating theater in every neurophysiologist's office. We integrated with Hewlett-Packard monitors. We um, integrated speech. We integrated video. We created a new evoke potential monitor um, algorithm for the anesthesiologist so they could see if something was going to be cut in the wrong place. And we made it so each one of those six neurophysiologists any time with all 12 operations going on. Now, this today sounds like super easy, like, yeah, no kidding, you do this. But this was in 1989, and um, it, it made a real difference. It made a real difference for those neurophysiologists and for the patients that were, were going through those operations. That's great. So let me back up a bit to your upbringing. I know you grew up in a rough neighborhood. You told me your friend was stabbed after high school. Dear God. Where? Where was, I mean, like, like what, what, what town? Or like what, what, what region of the country? It was, it was, it was, it was, it was in a town in Massachusetts. Uh, you know, a, 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 a blue collar working class town that got got pretty rough in the in the late seventies. You know, and yep. So yeah, my best friend got stabbed right before horrible. Um, right after high school graduation. Yeah, yeah. And you had very, but you had very enterprising parents despite the difficult times. Tell us about how that affected you. It seems to, it's so interesting to me because so many entrepreneurs we speak to have entrepreneurial parents. Yeah, so you know what? Yeah, I'm really, I'm really, they're both, they're both cast now. Um, but I'm so proud of them. And I think as you get older, you get proud of your parents. So my father, you know, he was, he, 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 he put himself through, through um, Boston University playing saxophone and clarinet and drums and bands and playing at weddings and whatever. He went to work as a sales rep and, and sales, sales robot. He went into the Army. Um, he went up to Fairbanks, uh, Fairbanks, Alaska, and helped set up the Air Force Base in the Army there. Um, and then his, his big job was he sold life insurance for John Hancock. Um, the thing that will strike me the most about my father's work ethic, was I was five. And believe it or not, the life insurance agents went on strike, you know, life insurance agents belonging to union, but they went on strike. And my father needed to take care of his family. So he went out and he drove a cab in Boston. And I always remember that thinking, my father wasn't too good to go out and drive a cab to take care of, to take care of his family. Makes me very proud, you know. And my mother, so my mother was a secretary she worked my entire life. She was a secretary. She worked at this company called Mosler Safe. They made safes for banks. They were later bought by American Standard. And um, she built her, she worked herself up from a secretary, and they, she was called a secretary. From a secretary, uh, she ended up being an accountant. She worked for Mosler Safe from when I was five to when I was about 30. And, and um, later in her life, I think she was 56 or 57, she got laid off um, from that accounting job. She stopped. She um, went to community college. She got her, her degree in interior design, and she spent the rest of her life working as an interior designer on Newbury Street here in Boston, which is, which is uh, impressive um, to be in Newbury Street in Boston as an interior designer. Yeah, so, so really very um, resilient, wow. very enterprising. Sure. Go for it. My father was, my father was all, always like, but you got to make money at that. Are you going to make money at that? And isn't that the basis of <laughs> you got to make money at that? What's the expression of going from sort of setback to setback with undiminished expectations, right? Um, it seems like yeah, a lot yeah. of that, the same thing that you must have learned from your folks as they've done their things, apply to your own experiences through the series of um, 
uh, challenging startup jobs that you initially had. Do you see a connection between uh, you? Know, how did how did it feel? I suppose where you know, okay, you're trying this really ambitious, innovative thing, and then it's it, so it you know here's one startup, here's another startup, and then there you know it, it, it seemed to be initially a pretty trying effort. How did you sort of have the wherewithal to stay in the game? Yeah, exactly. I was I was saying I think my first my first five endeavors failed, failed, and the last one really, which was in electronic publishing. This was in the eighties, right? And we didn't have electronic publishing then. We worked day and night for three years, and we were really making tremendous strides, tremendous strides, until finally we just ran out of money, like, like lots of times, like lots of times we do, and all the, all the, all of the, the turns that it took. I think, I think what drove me, one, was I was poor, and when you're poor, you don't have the luxury to give up, right? You, you need to support yourself and people around you, so I was poor. I needed to be resilient. Plus, I was just not going to fail. I knew, I always said, and it sounds, it sounds self-serving, but I'm really sincere. I always said I want to make a difference in the world. And if you want to make a difference in the world, you can't, you can't um, you know, feel sorry for yourself or give up or say I'm not going to do it again. You just have to keep going. And I, it has to be that watching my father drive a cab and watching my mother start over again made a difference. has to be. has to be. That's great. So despite those experiences, um, you were at Apollo then later on, and you were initially not super excited when your startup experience, uh, Apollo, became part of HP. Uh, You said you didn't like the idea of working for a big company. What was that about? Considering how difficult it had been to start small, you know, to work at small ones, why was the big company such a, a troubling idea for you? Yeah, I didn't win. So I remember I was sitting, I was sitting um, at my desk at Apollo Computer, and all of a sudden, because I had, I spent the small, the small time being a stockbroker. I, one of my friends called me and said, "Your company just got by, bought by Hewlett Packard." This was nineteen, um, nineteen eighty. I don't know nine, I think. And I said, "Is HP in the computer business now?" Okay, so. Maybe I was an idiot, but that's what I said. It's HP in the computer business. And I thought, I am not, I cannot work for that very large company. I cannot. I, I can't, I'm just not made for it. But there was a, there, um, it was, there'd just been a book written about HP and the eight best run companies or the eight best excellent companies or whatever. And I thought, well, you know what? I should stay for a year because I'm going to learn something. And they have this medical products group. Um, uh, um, division. So let me go see if I can work there. So I, I did. I got a job. I started in January of 1990 at HP, working in the medical products group. And I was in this group that sat between the computer business of HP and medical products group. It was called Healthcare Information Systems. And it turned out to be a, a super cool business. We, we, of course, worked with ISVs and OEMs to put their software on our hardware. But then we had our own clinical decision support um, systems that were first of the kind in the ICU and the CCU and, and OB, and um, we did system integration. It was at the time that President Clinton got into office and um, Hillary was working on, on health care reform. I got to work on health care reform uh, from being from HP, which was, which was so important. And I ended up actually loving it, finding a place where you can – you can carve out a place in a big company that you can be entrepreneurial and make a difference. And I, 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 the great thing about it was 
there were resources that we had run out of repeatedly in the startup. But you were, in the end, still planning to leave when you got this opportunity to do a startup within the big company at Heartstream, right? Yeah, I was. So on HP as it goes, and I was leaving. And um, then this this manager, who I had not known, said, come do defibrillators with me. And I said, defibrillators? Are you kidding? And I, he'll tease me, so I said, I will be bored in a month. And he said to me, well, we, um, we don't, we're, we're going to have to buy a company because we don't really have uh, the right technology here. And I thought to myself, well, I've never bought a company before. It'll help a lot to find out, you know, um, how it is that big companies purchase small companies that will help me in my career, so let me do this. I had also intended to do this for a year. Spent a year learning the resuscitation business, understanding where the market was going. This was in 1996. Um, spent all of 1997 putting together the business plan, convincing the Hewlett Packard board to buy this small company in Seattle, Washington called Heartstream. It was a $4 million company when we acquired them, and um, they had a four-pound automatic external defibrillator. I had not intended to, but I ended up going to Seattle, and I ended up managing this business from 1997 to 2006. We grew it from $4 million to $450 million, but more importantly than that was the impact that we had on the world. Before us, there were no defibrillators on airplanes or airports or public places. We're really credited with making that market, and it, it makes me extremely proud. I know it was the top-selling non-book product at Amazon at one time, and and uh, which is pretty interesting considering wow, that, incredible. that today that's probably you know like soap or something. But um, <laughs> what? Tell us the story of Bridget because I know that was really profound for you and and really formative in your thinking about what you wanted to do in the future. So the founder of uh, Heartstream, there were five founders, but the principal father, the grandfather of the founders was, was Carl Morgan. And when I showed up in Seattle in January of 1997, he said to me, I don't know who you are, but I don't like you. And we don't need some hot shot young manager coming in here to, to put a notch in her belt to move up the Hugh Packard executive chain. And I thought, well, well, Carl didn't know me at all, but he said to me, but Deborah, I'll give you some advice. Focus on saving lives and the money will come. Now, I, you know, Carl was revered by the, the team at Heartstream, and I revered him too, so I listened to him. But, you know, then you're in, the competition is saying your technology doesn't work, they're telling the clients your technology doesn't work. It seems like everybody's against you, and you start focusing on that. But we did, it was a year later, and we did a, a, um, a test. We, we convinced Delta Airlines to put 30 defibrillators on 30 planes and to train 30 flight attendants on um, how to use the defibrillators. Bridget McDonald was a flight attendant. She was 39 years old. She was a runner and a vegetarian and a gardener, and she had two young girls. There were three, and they were one. She was one of the flight attendants trained. She got on her flight from Salt Lake City back to Atlanta. It was May of, of 1999. That's how long ago this was. And at 10,000 feet, she went into cardiac arrest. Now, she Whoa. did not look like a person who was going to go into cardiac arrest at all. 
If it had been a different time, she would have been at the front of the plane by herself. But one of her colleagues, who had also been in the AED training, was there. Her colleague ran and got the defibrillator, which had been put on the plane the night before, came and, and, and shocked Bridget and converted her rhythm and saved her life. And saved her life. So this, wow. was, this was extraordinary. But the extraordinary thing for me was, it was the following September... And we were in front of Congress um, testifying of why defibrillators should be in um, airplanes and airports. And this woman walked up to me and she shook my hand, she looked right in my eyes and she said, I'm Bridget McDonald. I was dead and now I'm alive thanks to what you do. I get That's to awesome. smell the flowers and my, I get to smell the flowers in the garden and hug my two young children. It was so profound wow. on me. I knew, I knew that this is, this is what it's about. Carl was right. Focus on saving lives and the money will come in for HeartStream. It did come because then you have to know Delta put, put AEDs on every single, on every single flight. And we already had pilots in America, um, uh, pilot programs at American and United, but from, from, Bridget McDonald, it just went through the airplanes, went through the airplanes, went through the, through the airports. Mm. And I credit that with, with, um, with heartstring success and really also with people understanding that defibrillators need to be in public places. It's really interesting because you know the idea of focusing on 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 the people on on the on on the patients and then having I mean that's a very famous almost George Merck quote I think you know focus on the patients and the, you know profits will follow and it's nice you know to, to see it work out like that um, just to switch gears sort of uh, slightly to sort of just to make sure we we can continue with the understanding sort of your trajectory um, uh, it's sort of funny because you didn't really want to work at a big company but then you just sort of wound up at several of them that um, at first HP and then Philips, and then um, and then uh, IBM. What was the experience at, uh, you became CEO of Philips Healthcare, as I understand it, uh, after HP spun off its Agilent business and sold it to Philips. What was that experience like? Well, that was, it was, it was, it was. At Philips. It was great, because at the time, that, at the time that Philips acquired the Agilent Healthcare business, it was the early, early 2000s, and companies were deciding then, you know, health tech companies, do we get bigger or do we sell? HP decided to sell, uh, to split to Agilent. Agilent decided to sell to Philips, which Philips was acquiring. So, you know, Philips had been a, a, a pretty much a $1 billion x-ray business in, in 2000 and then, and then bought these companies, HP included, that got it to be a $6 billion, a $6 billion, a $6 billion euro business, actually. And it was a very exciting time. A man by the name of Harry Kleistley was the CEO of Philips, Royal Dutch Philips. He had come from healthcare. And he really wanted to build the healthcare business. So we worked on, of course, we kept building our defibrillator business, but then we worked on, on um, we acquired the Lifeline business, which was, you know, monitoring people in their homes. We combined that with an old Hewlett-Packard congestive heart failure um, monitoring business in the home. So we really focused on people taking care of people in their homes, and we, we built a healthcare informatics business. We we, we, the first activity monitor, people probably don't know this, but it was, um, it was called Direct Life at Philips. And I think it's still, Great Watches still may use Direct Life. It was the first activity monitor. We took wires off our patient monitors. The thing about Philips, 
tremendously innovative company. So it was a lot of fun. Until then, what happened, I was, I was CEO of Health Healthcare, and it was like 2012, 2013, 2014. You could just see the market changing dramatically, right? Essentially, the market had been the same for 25 years, you know, but now the market was changing all over the world dramatically. And artificial intelligence, I saw I was in an imaging business, right? I, I saw artificial intelligence is going to make a difference. Well, let me stop you there for a second, because I know you had a personal set of personal experiences that reinforced that thought for you. Your mom died of lung cancer, went through numerous challenges getting the right treatment plan. You had a similar personal experience, got three different diagnoses and three different treatment plans when you had breast cancer. You, you know, I, I think, you know, those must have been very seminal um, experiences in terms of thinking about why AI was so important. Oh, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, I was I, I was telling Lisa the other day, I, my mother, we didn't know what was wrong with her, and she kept she was trying to get um, diagnosed, and finally, um, finally, the, the community health center is staged for lung cancer. I grabbed my mother, got her to Dana-Farber, which is, the, which is you know, if you're in Massachusetts, you want to go to Dana-Farber. It was, it was in the mid-2000s, and I was sitting in Dana-Farber with, um, looking at film, looking at MRI images, looking at CT images on film. And I couldn't believe I was sitting there looking at film. I couldn't believe we were trying to, to dissect how, you know, what this, what, how big these lesions are on film. And... And then, because it, as you were saying, you really have to advocate for yourself. I sat for two hours with the oncologist. I would not leave on a clinical trial. And it, I was annoying. And I just, you know, he'd offer a clinical trial and I'd say no. And, and we finally settled, and I'm very grateful for this. We finally settled on an AstraZeneca anti-angiogenic clinical trial compared, um, um, combined with chemotherapy that said would live for two months, ended up leaving, living for five years. And this is the difference between my daughter being two and my daughter being seven. So my daughter really got to know her grandmother. But I realized, then, what are we doing looking at images? What are we doing looking at fuzzy images? What am I doing sitting here trying to convince this oncologist that my mother needs to be on a clinical trial? Um, and, and yeah, I, I came to be, we can, do, we can do so much more with artificial intelligence. I need to go there, and I need to be in a place where it's it's going to make it, it, where we're really going to invest in it, and it's going to make a difference to clinical decision support. So I know you then, after you left Philips, took some time, and you were scouting AI. You researched 150 companies. You told me ultimately yeah. picked IBM and Watson. Yeah. yeah. Why Watson? Why that choice? Well, you know, I had said, and, and I, 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 my IBM colleagues are going to listen to this, but I had said for that the recruiter was calling me, and I kept saying no. And I kept saying something like this. Um, I already worked for a TV company. i got to go work for a real AI company. Um, but finally, in the summer of, of 2015, Watson Health was already launched, but in the summer of 2015, I got to go into IBM Research. The people in IBM Research are extraordinary. They're just real, real researchers doing research, you know, ahead, looking out 10 years, understanding what's going to happen. And they had developed two pieces of technology that I hadn't seen anywhere else. One was deep learning and understanding images. 
both cardiovascular and breast. And they were, you know, from what I had seen, and I had come from an indigent company just ahead, just ahead. That was very impressive. But was what was more impressive to me was the technology used natural language processing to read through the electronic health record. Not only could I didn't read through the electronic health record, it was super fast, and they put the um, information that was um, important to diagnose the image from the EHR right beside the image. And I saw these two things. I didn't even see what the rest of it was, but I thought, oh my gosh, this, this, is, a, this is very important. From what I see, IBM is ahead here, and I'm, I'm thinking I'm gonna go work at a startup and, and work on this, and, and I'm gonna spend a lot of my time, a lot of my time convincing people of the technology, trying to get funding. When IBM is, is publicly saying they're gonna put a billion dollars into this, if I wanna make a difference in healthcare, I've got to go to IBM because they're investing and we're going to make a difference with this technology. So that's where I went. Right. On the one hand, an advantage of going to IBM is that you're really in an incredibly privileged position. They're deeply resourcing this. Um, uh, everyone's heard of IBM, um, and uh, you know it, it has a you know just a huge amount of intrinsic traction that way. Um, on the other hand, I imagine that um, you know flash forward to the present, the the road for Watson um, probably neutrally could be characterized as uh, complicated and has evolved maybe differently than some initially had had anticipated. Um, just what would you say, sort of looking at it, you know, thinking about the MD Anderson um, experience and others, um, you know, you sort of can't go a week without someone from the from the Broad making a tart comment about uh, how uh, uh, Watson thinks about AI. Um, wh what do you think went well and what do you think didn't quite go well and, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, so first, you know, Lisa men mentioned my breast cancer experience. So I, I, gotta, I have to bring that in here because for me, that was also pivotal and part of what went well. Um, I was five months at IBM Watson Health, and I went for my routine mammogram. And the radiologist, I, I had the mammogram, I had to go for the ultrasound. The radiologist looked in my eyes, said, we need to biopsy this. I said, no. She said, oh, no, if you were my sister, I'd biopsy, biopsy it. And, um, and two weeks later, the oncologist called me. I was a bit of a jerk, and, he, and it was 2.30 on a Friday afternoon, and he said, well, you know that, that, um, that biopsy? Well, uh, we found a tumor. It's cancer. I, I, I couldn't believe it. 2.30 on a, on, a, on, a, on a Friday afternoon, and I guess there's just this very cold voice on the other side of the phone. And I had just, I got, I, I was, uh, we were just at the very beginning. We were just at the very beginning. Um, I went then, of course, I, learned, I, I got, his, I got his, um, his prognosis. I went to two other breast surgeons. I went to three oncologists, and I went to three radons, and it was amazing to me. It, my breast cancer, according to them, was anywhere from two millimeters to two and a half centimeters big. That's the difference between, um, I think, stage zero and stage three breast cancer. I got treatment options, treatment options from a mastectomy to, to a lumpectomy. I got three different drug recommendations, and I couldn't even believe it. Three different radon treatments, anywhere from 29 days to 80 days. And I was left as a patient saying to myself, really, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? We can, one of these paths works better for me. One of these paths is so I... I went, we have, we have Watson for Oncology, it runs in the cloud. We had it downstairs. At that time, we only did four cancers, but breast was one of them. 
and I put my factors in and I got what Watson told me and I, I created my own care path from that. I had no idea until that time that variability in cancer care is, is vast. And if, and if you go to one oncologist sitting beside another, even in the same institution, you're likely to get a different care path. So what, what, so what that did for me was realize how important this was. And, and what it did for me also was realize that there are people in parts of the world that don't even have Dana-Farber. So at the beginning of 2016, we got very focused on China and India where the oncology to patient ratio is, you know, one to 800 and one to 1600. Um, and we now, we now have, we now have 45,000 patients who have been processed through Watson for oncology. So, you know, that, that's gone, you know, better than I expected actually. Do you have a, how did, is there a sense, you know, you were mentioning you got all these different, um, uh, ad- bits of advice, and then you got, then you sort of went to, to Watson and got put in your factors and you got, you know, arguably another opinion. Um, was there something that made you feel that the opinion from Watson was particularly better or more informed than all of the other opinions that you'd gotten? In other words, what made it a better opinion and not just another opinion? Oh, good question. So, so um, Watson for Oncology is trained by Memorial Sloan Kettering. And, and you know, there are, there are many great cancer institutions in our country, Memorial Sloan Kettering being one. But what's, what's, per, what's beautiful in artificial intelligence and the training is that um, training cases are put in and then they're vetted by, by a panel of Memorial Sloan Kettering oncologists. So you're, you're getting already not just one, but a panel and you're getting the um, uh, treatment recommendation from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Plus, Plus, we got to see, we have way more now than we did in 2016, but I got to read all the supporting um, documentation that was put in, that is put into um, support the recommendation from Memorial Sloan Kettering. So you get the Memorial Sloan Kettering, Kettering training um, recommendation, and then you get to look at all the supporting documentation which is really helpful. So is that really AI? Is it, I mean, if anything, it sounds like it's almost sort of like a rule-based tumor board based on how the people at Sloan Kettering think. There's nothing rules-based about this. People want to say this all the time. It is not rules-based at all. We do not, we, it's, it's actually impossible. And people will say this to me, well, you know, it, it's impossible to do imaging or to train a computer to think like a physician using rules-based processing. You just can't put in enough of the rules to get it to there. It's, 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 um, it's training cases, it's training cases, and, and then um, the machine, in our case Watson, has to reason through, because you don't find, say, let's say you, you put in 2,000 training cases. There's way more than 2,000 um, types of patients that are going to show up and, and be processed through any AI, including Watson for oncology. So the machine has to reason through, Watson for oncology reasons through. And then it, we, we have, we've read in like 23 million PubMed articles. And reading in 23 million PubMed articles and matching the appropriate articles to the patient, that's, um, that's really sophisticated. Um, uh, we use, we use we, natural language processing and patient similarity and and a lot of um, uh, neural network tools to make that happen. 
So what have what has been the the biggest sort of um, either controversy or disappointment or learning you've had? What do you what are you trying to do differently now to continue on in the path you're on? So it's it's. I was just writing about this this morning. It it takes time to train the models. If you have to use big data, it takes time to train the models. When you want to go fast, fast, fast to make a difference. So um, I, I wish two years ago we had we had we had started um, doing research on uh, small small data sets. And now we are. Now we're 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 doing you know AI on small data rather than AI on big data. And we're 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 having we're having um, tremendous results. But but we have to do it. So that's really one of the learnings that, that if you need to train on big data, it simply takes too long. It simply takes too long. We tr- we want to get to over ninety percent accuracy in everything we do, whether it be our whether it be Watson for Oncology or it be um, inpatient safety dispositioning, whether something is an adverse event or not and what kind. If you want to get over 90%, it takes time. So we, we've learned that. And then, you know, you're out in front and people like to, people like to shoot at you. So we take a lot of arrows, but then we just, we just keep going, remembering. You know, I, tell my team, I tell my team all the time, there's a person. There's a person at the end of what we're doing. And honestly, I think a lot that that was me. Or, and I don't want to be sappy, but that was me or it's my mother. And, and, and my mother and me are counting on us to do a great job. So we've got to keep going. So you, uh, continuing on in the generations, you have a daughter about to enter MIT. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yet another nerd launched into the world. Um, what's the life lesson you learned that you most wanted to take along the way? It's a great question. Yeah, I think to be resilient to, you know, I, I don't know, Lisa, if I was telling you this, but Emily... Her entire life has been um, looked over. You know, her 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 uh, family thought that her cousins were smarter. Her teachers um, said to me in eighth grade, "Oh no, she doesn't want to go to um, she goes to Phillips Academy in Andover, this fancy boarding school." But she, she doesn't want to go there. It's going to be too hard. She should go someplace where she can be a, a big fish in a little pond. And 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 you know, her her college concert told me, "Why is she going to apply to MIT?" She should apply to Marist. Now, Marist is a very good school, but you know it's not MIT, and so it's it's just it's 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 one validated Emily, and and to be resilient because people people for whatever reason might may want to overlook you, may not want to think that you're the smartest or the best or the or 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 you can make that business. Um, just know what you can do. Be resilient and keep going. That's so fantastic. You know, what's interesting is um, uh, my, my folks, uh, they, they happen to study dyslexia, and there are so many examples they continuously point to of everyone from, from Toby Cosgrove to Cleveland Clinic um, to range of Nobel laureates who almost consistently were underestimated, who people said, well, why don't you try something more you know, simpler that's, that's more your level? And the com- combination of people having confidence in themselves and loved ones having confidence in those persons and really enabling them to, to, to try um, so I, I really wish uh, uh, her the very best of luck. I think MIT for anyone is 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 a, is a really like kind of a very challenging, a rough. I was you know I was there for my PhD, and like I would look at the undergraduates and think they're incredibly smart, but it's a rough experience. So, um, but I think with you know with you and everyone else there to you know to be supportive, I'm sure it'll. Um, uh, I'm sure that'll really help. I couldn't have got in there if my life depended on it. So, Deborah, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been so wonderful to speak with you as it always. Thank is. you so much. Thank you guys. Cool podcast. Talk to you later. 
today's guest, Deborah DeSanzo, was speaking to us from Boston, Massachusetts, and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. There were so many interesting stories there, and I thought what her descriptions of, of you know, her experiences with, with Kent, her experiences with resilience, uh, it was really, um, you know, very affecting. Yeah, you know, and also I think those of us in healthcare, unless we're physicians, we so rarely get to see the results of our work in patients. I think that Bridget story really had a nerve oh for me gosh. as well. So it makes it so tangible. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you recognize, and I think, you know, in, in, in companies, they, you know, they, they, I mean, what I remember on the opposite side of that was um, working with some folks who were doing basic research at an unnamed pharma company involving diabetes, and they had never actually seen a patient with diabetes. I mean, literally, the animal models in some of the cases were the disease. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa, you know. <laughs> and, and, and in contrast, the experience of delivering you know, defibrillators for people on a plane, it was very real. And here, her experience is very real with the experience of the difficulty of diagnosis. And, uh, you know, I still think where we wind up is the fact that there's an incredible, the important problem to be solved is different from meeting any one person a number of companies we've discussed in this podcast, meaning they necessarily have the answer. But it's certainly terrific that someone with IBM's resources views this as a critically important problem to try to solve. Could not agree more. Well, you can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow the inimitable Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. Also, remember to uh, rate us on iTunes so that others can uh, discover the show. We'd like to thank our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Awesome. Take care, Lisa. Take care.